Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it, Within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, uh, welcome to our sutra lecture tonight. This is uh, Christmas Eve, it's December 24th, 2011, and we are here on, uh, uh, in Berkeley, California, and lecturing on the third ground of the Ten Grounds chapter of the Avatamsaka Sutra. So, uh, if that is what you've come for. You're in the right Buddha hall, by all means. And we have a Vietnamese language translation up in the uh, balcony, and also we have some young volunteers who are translating into Mandarin for Grandma, which is pretty nice. They're starting them young. That's terrific. So let's begin tonight by uh, invoking the Avatamsaka Assembly of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and it's on the front cover of your sutra text. And we'll chant that name now. Namo
All right. In your sutra text, please turn to page 48 and 49. We're down at the bottom paragraph. Pusa Rushi Chin Chiu Fo Fa Soyo Chan Sai Jie Wu Lin Xi Bujian 西能舍失无有恭敬无有恭敬而不能行而不能行无有娇慢无有娇慢而不能舍无有称事无有称事而不能做而不能受 all right, let's take a look at the English right across the page there. This is how the Bodhisattva diligently seeks the Buddha Dharma. In his search, he does not cling to any of his treasures or wealth, nor does he see any object too rare or special to renounce. He considers truly special only someone who is able to explain the Buddha Dharma. Therefore, the Bodhisattva can renounce all inner and outer wealth in his search for the Buddha Dharma. He can show any manner of reverence He can swallow any amount of pride. He can offer any kind of service. And he can endure any kind of pain and toil. Okay. Uh, There we go. Yes. Okay. Here we are. It's December 24th. And the... uh, This is the... 
the fabled and storied night before Christmas holiday. But for, for us, we have a special kind of uh, gift to give that, as the sutra says, uh, the bodhisattva values more than any gift under the tree. This is uh, to be able to hear the Buddha Dharma is uh, considered the, by this bodhisattva to be the, 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 the point of his existence. This is the reason why this bodhisattva lives now. And uh, it's kind of uh, poignant that we're spending the time tonight looking into this ancient text instead of uh, dreaming about presents gift-wrapped under the tree. Now, not that those are mutually exclusive. You can do both. Um, we can both enjoy the presence under the tree and also the, uh, the glories of the Dharma. So I think they're very complementary. But uh, from the Bodhisattva's point of view, uh, if he had to choose, if there was only one that he could unwrap under the tree, it would be the opportunity to understand the Buddha Dharma because... Uh, as we find out later, this is the way that suffering ends, and he's made that connection in his mind. So let's take a look. What does it say? Let's look first at the text and then go into the meaning. And then the third step is to see how it connects to our lives. So, Pusa Rushir Chinchou Fofa Soyo Jansai Jewulinshi. This is how the Bodhisattva diligently seeks the Buddha Dharma, and in his search for that, he doesn't cling to any of the treasures or wealth. What does it say? Bodhisattva, in this way, chin chou fofa, diligently seeks Buddha Dharma. Okay? Um, the Rusher in this way, talks about what we've been hearing all along these last couple months now, how um, the Bodhisattva's uh, understanding that things in the world fall apart. There's nothing that doesn't. And when that happens, people suffer. And... These are people he cares about, so he wants to find a way to stop them from suffering. That's his goal. And he's discovered it, which is when he understands the Buddha's teaching, um, he's, his suffering stops, and he wants to do that for others. So uh, two weeks ago, we had this really interesting um, sequential logic, this, this argument where the Bodhisattva connects that the most important thing to do is to learn. He wants to study. He wants to study the Dharma. And then last week we found out that uh, how in his mind this Bodhisattva says the, the Dharma, that is to say the teachings of the Buddha, are the thing to study. So that's what it means when it says this is how. That's how the Bodhisattva pursues learning the Buddha Dharma. Chin Chiu diligently seeks puts effort into his search. So um, I relate to that. Mm, let's see. I've already gone ahead to not do what I said I was going to do. Let's do what I said I was going to do. Let's look at the language. Let's look at the context. And then let's put it into our lives. So this is how he diligently chill, seeks, looks for, for fa, Buddha's teaching. Soyo Jansai Jewulinshi, every kind of wealth, treasure, money, Jewulinshi completely doesn't cling to, doesn't value, is not stingy. These are the words used for stinginess. The Bodhisattva is not 
um, thinking about his bank account, his stocks and bonds, his real estate, his art treasures, his collection of fine wines, his Macintosh computers. He is not very stingy at all. In fact, these are things that he, it's not that he doesn't know about them, but he doesn't cling to them. He doesn't say, this is who I am based on what I own. That's certainly, he doesn't identify with brands. He does not buy Ming Pai. He's not thinking about an Hermes bag or a Gucci bag or uh, Ferragamo shoes. He's not into brands at all. It's as long as it covers his body, that's enough, or her body. It doesn't have to be something that catches the eye. He's not into uh, material goods for their value. He's totally a functionalist, as bodhisattva. If it works, if it does the job, good enough. He never feels that there's anything that is priceless, valuable, comma, right? It's not that he doesn't know values. The bodhisattva is clear about everything. He does, he's not casual about anything. But it's, that's not where his mind goes. He thinks if he can meet somebody who can explain the Buddha Dharma, that's rare. That's hard to meet. That's something he is waiting for. Literally, if there does not feel, if there is an object rare and valuable, he doesn't, that's not what lights his fire. Only for able to speak Buddha Dharma person does he think this is hard to meet. This is special. So, that's the, that's the bodhisattva's value system at work. We're getting it right there. This is really... Um, a result of the sequence that we've been running from ground number one to the second ground to the third ground. This is totally in line with all of that. We'll get there in a minute. Therefore, shigu pusa for this reason, the bodhisattva is com- literally, here we go, bodhisattva regarding internal and external wealth, only seek Buddha Dharma, completely able to let go of. The bodhisattva can give up any valuable thing, and it identifies what would be internal wealth. Well, the sutra is goes on with that, and, and Master Hua would always... Uh, be very clear as he would say the bodhisattva can give up external wealth, meaning his position, his money, his properties, his authority, his position. If he was a king, he would abdicate the throne. And then he would say internal wealth would be things like bones, marrow, blood, eyeballs, meaning his own physical body. He could give that up if requested in order to seek the Buddha Dharma. He, he can let go of all those things in the search for the Buddha Dharma. Wuyo gongjing arbunangshe xing. Wuyo jiao man arbunangshe. Wuyo chengshi arbunangzuo. Wuyo qingku arbunangshou. Therefore, the Bodhisattva can renounce all inner and outer wealth. He can show any manner of reverence, swallow any amount of pride, offer any kind of service, and endure any kind of pain and toil. For 
four sentences with the same pattern, you, the Chinese is the same in every case. Wu four times. There is no, doesn't, doesn't have, what is it? Gong Jing, respect, Jiao Man, pride, Cheng Shi, service, Qin Ku, pain and toil, ardent, vigorous, energy. Er Bu Neng, then the verb, that he is not able to practice, renounce, do, and accept, take on. So the pattern is the same in every case. There is no respect the Bodhisattva cannot practice. There is no pride the Bodhisattva can't let go of. There is no service the Bodhisattva refuses to do. There is no diligent or hard pain, misery the Bodhisattva can endure in order to get the Buddha Dharma. Okay, so there's the, that's the grammar of this passage. And I was talking to somebody today about the Avatamsaka, and they were saying, boy, there's something very special about this text. You just feel it in the atmosphere every time you touch it. However, we don't always understand it. I don't always, always get it. And my answer was, yup, I totally agree. I know what you mean. However, this is not one of those places. Right? This is really straightforward. What is philosophical or abstract about this? Nothing. It's really clear. The bodhisattva's values are being examined here. And like I said, it's, um, we've, we know the steps we took to get here. This is the third ground already. And the bodhisattva in the first ground which was the stage of the ground of happiness, um, explained what made him happy. What were the things that he really liked that gave him joy? And we heard about those. And because of this happiness, he was never afraid. Remember the five kinds of fear the Bodhisattva was able to overcome with the five kinds of courage? And all of the giving the Bodhisattva does, the generosity that makes him or her happy, Then we got to the second ground where the Bodhisattva was going through his ethical commitment, the moral values this Bodhisattva maintains. Um, uh, For example, the the ten goods and the ten evil deeds. We heard about those at great length. What does the Bodhisattva do? What does the Bodhisattva not do? Including thoughts in the mind. So body, mouth, and mind ethical guidelines and when you say ethical guidelines it sounds like kind of like something that that professors talk about and preachers talk about what it means is behavior the bodhisattva changes his behavior he she does things different day in and day out morning to night jumping out of bed to going to sleep. The Bodhisattva does things differently. Everything is different than before. Before was what? Before was whatever. Go with the flow. Doesn't really matter. Nobody's watching. Somebody, you know, somebody told me to. It's not my fault. 
just doing my job, right? That kind of whatever kind of, that there's no sense of reflecting on your choices and saying, yeah, I could do it this way, I could do it another way. What's the best thing to do? Well, the Buddha told me that if I want to meditate to success and I do this, I'm going to block myself. If I meditate and I want to meditate to success and I do that, I'll slip right through and move right ahead. And my life will improve. So I'm going to choose the Buddha's wisdom, that choice, and avoid the things he said not to do because they'll block me. Buddhist ethics. Right away, boom. Very clear. Oh, that's what it means. It's called wise choices based upon something I want. What is, what is it that I want? I want to meditate smoothly without getting distracted, without being confused. I want to be able to look at people in my life and not have regrets, not have to, to always pick up the baggage. I want to be able to put that stuff down and start fresh every time I see that person I've decided to spend my life with or have no choice because they're my brother, my sister, my son, my daughter, my father, my mother, my kids. I want to be able to look at my kids and see the joy in their hearts and not always have to be the dad, you know, who's always frowning. That's how did we get there? How do we get to that place where I'm always frowning at my kids? I don't want to do that. I want to be able to have them look at me and not see me as some authoritarian figure. How do I do that? Well, said the Buddha, if you avoid killing, stealing, lusting, speaking the four kinds of false speech and being greedy, angry, and deluded, delusive, then you can start fresh every time. And every encounter with your own kids will be a source of deepening satisfaction and connection, a feeling of mutual support. You support the kid's enthusiasm, and the kid supports your steadiness, your common sense. Okay? So that sounds ideal, right? I don't have kids. Easy for me to say, right? How nice to be able to preach to the parents when I don't have kids. Oops. But we're talking principle here. The Bodhisattva says, yeah, I'm interested in making choices that lead me towards stillness and peace of mind and insight. And the Buddha says, hot dog, I got some. Here's what you do. Avoid this, do this. Ten goods, ten evils. Bodhisattva changed his, her behavior to accord with these new decisions that he, she has been making in her life. The result is, get to the third ground. What is the third ground? Well, there is a connection between the paramitas and the grounds, especially up to six. One, two, three, four, five, six. First paramita is giving. Giving is the source of happiness, the practice of happiness. Second paramita is precepts. So the second ground is the ground that talks about ethical behavior, precepts. Now we're at the third ground, and the third ground is about what? Patience. Learning how to be patient. It's the paramita of patience. 
And the third ground is talking about how the bodhisattva makes a decision that of all the things in the world that you can do and want, getting the Buddha Dharma, learning the Buddha Dharma, is the best thing to want. Better than money. And if we look at that decision, one reaction might be, oh, this bodhisattva is too good to be true. When I was growing up, the phrase was, goody, goody, two shoes. Or, goody, two shoes. What was a goody, two shoes? Somebody you hated. You'd also call him a teacher's pet. Right? Brown noser. This was something nobody wanted to be. Too good to be true. Always smiled. Always said just the right thing, even when it meant hiding, covering your heart. Right? Your mouth says yes, but your heart says no. But you can say yes, because you know it'll get you points. It's a political thing to say. It has nothing to do with your real feelings. People hate people like that. Toadies, brown nosers, yes men, yes women, right? Say the right thing to score points, but hate it inside. So that's not what the bodhisattva is here. It's not why he or she wants to study the Buddha Dharma. It's because why? It's a clear, distinct reason. The Bodhisattva is different from before because they have seen through the surface. When they look at people, they're not looking at clothes, status, family, in America, it's funny to say class and caste, but we definitely have class society. They're not looking at your car. Bodhisattvas are going through the surface looking at their connection to you, their relationship to you, and they see the connection. They see the deeper parts. And that deeper part is always family. Because of that connection, when we, who they're looking at, do things that hurt, they hurt as if it were your kid, as if it were your mom. That's how bad it hurts, and they want to make it stop hurting. So from the wisdom that sees through the surface comes the compassion that sees the connection. And the compassion says, I want to make it stop hurting. So, that's the reason. And the only thing that they have found that works to make it stop hurting is the Buddha's teaching. Because it worked for the Buddha. And then the Buddha took the time to explain it. And they're finding out that it works for us, too. That's why. That's why the Bodhisattva wants the Buddha Dharma. It's not because of being goody two-shoes. Okay? So that's, that's an important distinction, I think. And if you see that, it all makes sense. Last week down at Go Sage, we were um, talking about the Bodhi Resolve. 
And if you can get, if you see the Bodhi resolve and understand that particular state, you have a key. That, that unlocks a lot of this. And a lot, it's kind of like the ridge pole that everything else hangs from. When you see that the Bodhisattva has already decided that he or she is going to become a Buddha, that it's really, really possible, not only possible, it's going to happen. And that's the first half. But the second half is, in order to become a Buddha, the Bodhisattva says, yes, I've got to take across all living beings. You know that phrase? Du zhong shang, du zhong shang. I'm going to take living beings across. How am I going to take living beings across? And what in the world does that mean? It means that the Bodhisattva has understood that between me right this minute and Buddhahood at some time in the future is my bad temper and my pride and my feelings of low self-esteem and my love of dirty jokes and my profanity and my habit of lying and my secret vices. I spend way too much time on the computer and things like that. The Bodhisattva says, yeah, I'm going to become a Buddha. I know I can, but before I get there, I've got to shine a light inside and illuminate all the places that are still dark. Those are the living beings I'm crossing over. We say there are no other living beings beyond those. Because if you can do that, if you can light up those dark spots inside, then when you meet folks outside, they immediately feel from you that there's, a, there's something, a radiance, an, a luminosity, an energy, a magnetism, we call it charisma, all those things just pop out because of something, because of the work that you've done. There is a connection. Master Empty Cloud, they said that he, you felt the connection from behind. You didn't even have to see his face, and you were subdued because of the fact that the hard work that he had done on these grounds, learning to give, perfecting his ethical decisions, and learning patience. If you can do that, you shine. You shine. People feel it. And it's not makeup. It's a light that you shine because you've uncovered, not that you got anything, it's what you got rid of that now results in your nature shining forth. That's the living beings, and that's the second half of the Bodhi result. So he says, yes, I want to become a Buddha. I know I have the potential to do that, and it's by uncovering my nature through hard work at facing my bad habits and dealing with them one by one by one that I'm going to become a Buddha. That's the only thing between me and that Buddhahood someday in the future, says the Bodhisattva. So, having made that decision, he can show any manner of reverence. doesn't matter who he can hear the Dharma from, he'll bow to that person. He can swallow any amount of pride. There's no, no point where the Bodhisattva says, no way, I'm going to humble myself. You can't, can't do that. 
He says, sure I can. If I can learn the Dharma, that bit of medicine, that's exactly what this living being needs to take in order to get better, I'm going to do it. Can offer any amount of service. He will go low. She will go low in her search for the Buddha Dharma. Go back to second grade, if need be, to learn something that is available in second grade. And further, Bodhisattva will endure any kind of hard work in order to do it. So, what does it sound like? Patience. It sounds like real patience. The Bodhisattva will bow any number of times in order to get this Dharma. So, what, uh, when, you, when you get that idea about the Bodhi resolve, this goes, oh, that's a whole different motivation. Compare wealth, getting rich, getting famous, getting powerful, getting your name on the cover of the rolling stone. Not. Bodhisattva will let go of all of that in order to learn the Dharma. So they say things like, um, in the in the Chan retreat, it's the cooks in the kitchen who get enlightened first. Right? Do you hear that one? That that's what they say. And you could believe it if you go into the kitchen in a Chan retreat. Everybody else is sitting in the hall, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right? Getting enlightened quickly. More or less. The guys in the kitchen are just boom, 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 boom. Light a fire, burn this, get the fire, stir it, pot. Don't let it burn. You know, moving, 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 moving their bodies. Not a bit of stillness, none of this stillness, right? They're boom, 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 boom. To serve. And as a result, guess what's getting, what is amassing, what's gathering is their blessings. Working in the kitchen, you don't get prajna wisdom. You get worldly wisdom. You learn how to cook and serve and how to move and how to, I mean, being a cook in a big monastery is like a dance. You've got to be right on cue. If you're 30 seconds late, you lose the pot of rice. Ooh. So they're getting blessings and burning away their karma that goes away when you serve. And then once that's gone, it's the first time they sit down, their mind finds the middle. So that's what the Bodhisattva is doing. He or she is is showing respect, purging pride, offering service, and enduring pain. Okay? The point is that this is how the Bodhisattva wants to get the Dharma. Sure, who used to talk about uh, 
he wanted to, to sh- throw some contrast onto the work that he was doing. Mm. People think it must have been truly blissful to, to have a teacher like ours um, lecturing on sutras every single night. And blissful is not the word I would use. Uh, it was an unbelievable opportunity to do what the Bodhisattva and the Sutra is doing. But it was very easy to take it for granted. Why? Because it happened every night. Twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday. Christmas Eve, if that was the night, Sherpa was there lecturing on sutras. New Year's Eve, lecturing on sutras. And because we lived in the monastery, of course, we were there all the time. But it was easy to think, oh, well, Sherpa will be there tomorrow. And the sutra, you know, it's a lot the same week to week, you know. There's not a lot of action, not very exciting. And it's easy to think, take it for granted. You know, it's always going to be there. Not just Shurfu, you know. In the Buddha's time, the Buddha said that he was going to enter nirvana because the monks all took him for granted. They thought, oh, well, the Buddha's always going to be here. I can get enlightened when the time comes. You know, kind of let it go. And as soon as the Buddha announces he's entering nirvana, all the monks are shomang jiao lan, right? They're suddenly like frantic for fear that they'll lose their chance. So uh, Shurfa would lecture every night, and he would say, you don't appreciate how rare this is. Here you have someone who has brought the Dharma to America and is begging you to take, to take it seriously, to take the Dharma as your own responsibility. Who among you has done this? You just think it's always going to be here. You've got it in Chinese. You've got it in English. You've got it in Vietnamese. We're translating it into French and German and Spanish and Italian. Never mind Bahasa Indonesia and Polish, he would say. You know what it was like in the past, he would say. <laughs> say, in the past, there was no Buddha tech. There was no sutras. There weren't any. He said the monks used to pack up the Earth Door Sutra, take ten copies of it, and go out into the mountains and find a village, find a temple out there in the village and say, okay, who wants to hear a sutra lecture? And people would come scrambling, and they would bow, and they would light incense and offer food and say, please stay, please stay. We don't have any texts, but if you can lecture on it, we'll listen to anything you want to say. And he would say, I have ten copies. And he would take his backpack off, and sure enough, there were ten scrolls of the Dizam Pusapanyanjing Restore Bodhisattva Sutra, past bows of the Bodhisattva Restore. And people would just be thrilled because why? There weren't any texts. There weren't any. Here it is, and they put it in their hands, and they would all diligently copy and make their own copies and then bow and request the monk to speak the Urstor Bodhisattva Sutra. Really did that. 
And uh, then he would, when he was done lecturing, he would pack it up and, uh, and move on to the next place. And people would say, I got to hear a monk lecture on the Earth Door Sutra. Bodhisvaha. I was going to say hallelujah, but bodhisvaha, right? Hallelujah. How wonderful. In 1999, 98, was Loma Prieta Earthquake 98? 98, right? 1998. 99? 89. 89, right, 89. In 1989, we were in Taiwan, following Shurfu, and we went to a little town on the west coast called Douliu. That also happens to be where our master uh, Hung Yun is from. And in Douliu, uh, we, we had a big delegation with us, and we needed a place to stay because we were on the road and it was late, and Shifu had lectured at a gymnasium, high school gym. And, of course, he had us speak first, much to the chagrin of the, the locals, because Shurfu always had the disciples speak first, and he would speak last. And they wanted to hear the, the varsity team lecture, not the JVs. And so Shurfu gave a Dharma talk, and ah, it was, you know, rafters are ringing. He could really make the lions roar. Oh, my goodness. Just the sound was, made you sit up straighter you know, much more the content. It was a really powerful Dharma talk and because he always could speak right to people's potentials. He knew where you were and he would just, everybody had the impression that he was talking to you alone. You know, it's like, really? What do you mean Sherpa was speaking for you? That was for me. That talk was just for me. What do you mean he was talking to you? Everybody had that experience that this is right. Shurfu knows what I'm thinking and he's teaching me. <gasps> he's reading my mind. So we left the hall and people all wanted to bow. At the end of the lecture, Shurfu would sit in a chair and everyone would bow to him, line up. They would bow for 40 minutes, one by one by one, until the last person had bowed. And we would stand there and Shurfu would say, yeah, he said, you all notice they're all we were standing behind Sherfield like Dharma protectors, thinking that we were going to protect him. <laughs> and Sherfield would say, you know why they're all bowing to me now? No, Sherfield. He would say, they're just returning all the bows that I did for 10 years when I was a kid in Manchuria, bowing 837 bows a day in the morning and at night. He said, they're just bowing, they're just basically huan they're bowing, they're giving my bows back because I bowed on their behalf to the Buddhas for 10 years. You understand now? No, Sherpu. <laughs> That's too inconceivable. Okay, you're, you're still too young. So we saw that. We get back to the temple where we're going to stay, this Boondocks Monastery, 
and uh, in Doliu, and we're all on mats at, upstairs with just a, a kind of a screen hanging from rafters in between. And the nun who owns the temple and who lives there is crying and crying and crying. She won't stop crying. And so everybody gathers around. The women are at another temple. Where are these? All the men are here. There's like 15 of us there. Monks and laymen. Why is she crying? And Shurfu comes down and says, well, ask her. She speaks Taiwanese, so we don't speak Taiwanese. So somebody says, ask her why she's crying. And this, this nun, she's, she's as wide as she is tall. She's just totally round. She's just big, you know, about five foot two and about five foot two. And, and she's crying. She's about 60 years old. And, and uh, she looks to be happy. She's crying out of happiness, not out of sadness. Why are you crying? She's crying. Oh, this is too wonderful. Oh, what do you mean, too wonderful? Too wonderful. This is too wonderful. What do you mean? It's too wonderful. Uh, do you know when I left home? No, when did you leave home? I left home 50 years ago. You've been a nun for 50 years. How old are you? I'm 62. She left home at age 12. She didn't take the precepts until she was 20, but she's, you know, she was a novice. And we said, well, that's good. Congratulations. Why are you crying? She said, it's too wonderful. She said, I've never heard the Buddha Dharma before. What? Nobody here lectures on the Dharma. I've never heard a monk speak Dharma before, and it's too wonderful, she said. Shriva looks at us and says, Now do you understand? Yes, Shriva. He says, You take it for granted. Oh. So here she was. She'd been a nun for 50 years. Never had a chance. The monks where she... Then she'd been a really good nun, working hard, cooking, cleaning, sweeping, sewing, bowing, repenting, you know. Never had a chance to hear a lecture. She hadn't heard a sutra lecture. It was just the Dharma. Monks don't do it where she goes, you know. So it's like, oh... Now, how many monks are there in Taiwan? How many tens of thousands of monks are there in Taiwan? She just didn't have the affinities to hear it. I mean, there are places in Taiwan where monks lecture all the time. Don't get, get me wrong. But, you know, she out in Doliu had never had the chance. She, her shirfu was gone by the time she, you know. And probably there were political reasons she didn't show up other places, you know. So... Shirfu comes in town and she goes because he's an American monk. It's okay for her to go, you know. She no political boundaries to cross. So she, she thinks it's too wonderful. She says, "Finally, I understand. Never heard the Dharma." Yeah, we take it for granted, Shirfu. <laughs> so here we have, you know, English, Chinese, Vietnamese, Avatamsaka Sutra, and we go, "Oh yeah." You know, but I notice all of you came on Christmas Eve. Congratulations, you're in the Bodhisattva's footsteps. There is no present I would rather unwrap than the Buddha Dharma. I know that's really kind. You didn't want me to be lonely here. I have my guitar. I can get along. 
Yeah, actually I'm here with all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. How could I be lonely? <laughs> There's only one hum- visible human. If I'm here by myself, you only see one human being. But I suspect there are probably other beings here, especially the elders in our rebirth hall. You know, we would hope that there would be, the Buddha hall would be full of ghosts and spirits. Um, so don't worry that we're alone here. Um, I remember the first month that we moved, um, wasn't the first month, six months after we moved in, we put in the, the rebirth hall and the long life hall early on. And we put up some pieways because people quickly wanted the service that those offer. And I had to go to a, uh, I think I went to L.A. and asked a lay person to stay here. And the first night, the next morning, first night passed the next morning, I got a phone call from the layman. He said, I, I had to leave. <laughs> Why did you have to leave? There's things there. What do you mean there are things there? The air is full of things. I, I couldn't stay in that room. There was just too much presence, too much activity. Too, invisibly, there was too much things flying around in there. And I said, oh, come on. I said, where did you go? He said, well, I went to light incense in the rebirth hall, and I couldn't get in there. I had to leave. What do you mean? He said, don't you think when you put up highways that you want there to be things there? What do you th- where do you think grandma goes when you put up a pieway, you know? And the ancestors, you hope that they're there in a clean, respectful, proper place where we're lighting incense, making offerings, doing ceremonies, giving you a chance to come. Of course there are things there. That's, that's a good thing, not a bad thing, you know? Oh, I never thought of it that way. He said, okay, that's good. So, yeah, so we're not alone here, don't worry. We hope that there are things here. And Sherpa would say, if you request the triple jewel, Rufa, according to Dharma, they are only too happy to come to bless this. It's just that people don't do it enough, that they don't get enough requests to come and attend. So that was uh, definitely something I felt every time at Gold Mountain Monastery or City of 10,000 Buddhas, I had the feeling that um, when Shurfa would put his palms together and go, Sadanto Suche Doye Ula Hudi Sanyao Sanbutoshe, you've had a feeling that something, something comes. And after the sutra lecture, you felt cleaner and lighter. And it was, you know, uncanny and hard to explain. But if you don't think about it so much, just go do it, you feel something's different. Definitely something's different. So this is how the Bodhisattva diligently seeks the Buddha Dharma. And it talks about his values. Now, it's, it would be wrong to think that the Bodhisattva doesn't know what's good. It's not the case that the Bodhisattva is completely um, ignorant of the marketplace. Not at all. This 
you don't, you're not born a bodhisattva, right? You cultivate to bodhisattvahood. You uh, are born into the Dharma from the marketplace. And boy, oh boy, the marketplace. Did you, have you all, like me, has your email box been full of last-minute Christmas mailings? I've been getting, you know, from Amazon and Barnes & Noble, if you buy one book... For your Kindle, you're on that, then boom, boom, every day, like two or three times a day, I've been getting last-minute gift suggestions in my email, just endless. And it's, the marketplace is so uh, keen that, for example, um, if if you buy online, your profile gets filtered down so you get to see ads tuned to what you bought before. So if you go looking for, for example, bicycle frames, let's say you're a bike mechanic, pretty soon you notice that you're getting lots of advertisements for local bike shops. And it's the, uh, our, our genius. We, in this country, we have a genius for business. We do business. And we do it really well. We don't necessarily take care of our parents. We don't pay attention to our, uh, the, the notion somehow that we're going to get sick and require medical care. Pay no attention to that. But we will definitely tell you uh, what the latest kind of sunglasses and the latest digital camera and tires for your car. We know all about that. By golly, we're good at that. So the Bodhisattva says, yeah, yeah, I know that. I don't shut my eyes, but I don't value it. I don't live my life according to the whims of style and fashion and season, right? Um, For example, I've been watching, um, I read movie reviews, I'm interested in movies as a carrier of the culture because show me, beside TV, TV certainly, but where else do we take our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, go into a dark space, sit down in a seat, and allow wraparound sound and this big silver screen open our eyes wide and go, feed me. For two hours. <laughs> and where do those images go? And that sound. They go right into our consciousness and we become what we behold, obviously. We do it smaller on the TV. Although, although... Statistic today, saw the statistic, for the first time in some 30 years, television sales have decreased. We are buying and using television less now, less than 50%. We are switching to computers and tablets and phones for consuming media to the point that TVs are on the decline. How about that? So, uh, anyway, 
we, we do it to TVs too, but think about that. We just go honk, and all that stuff goes, we soak it up. For better or for worse. Is it romantic comedies? Is it, look at all the divisions of categories in Netflix. If you go down the Netflix category, you get, uh, what is it? Emotional dramas with a strong female lead. That's a Netflix category, right? You want foreign comedies for children, right? Netflix has all these fine and fine and fine categories. So many movies come and go, and which ones get reviewed? Mm, Depends on where you read. We sit there and absorb these movies, and they change our brains. They instruct our values. They give us language. They teach us about style and fashion. If you don't believe it, um, when Gary Cooper... Was it Gary Cooper or Cary Grant? Started smoking on screen. Everybody started smoking. When Clark Gable stopped wearing a hat, he showed up. There was a film. Clark Gable's in a film, Bareheaded. The sales of hats dropped 30% within the next year. How many men do you know who wear snap brim fedoras besides Willie Brown? the former mayor of San Francisco. Do you know any, anybody in your male relations families wear, like, hats that they check in the mirror? Hat racks? Any restaurant you know that has a hat rack? We don't wear hats. Men don't wear hats. That's a change. My father's generation, men all wore hats. If you didn't have a hat, you were not well-dressed. In a movie, Clark Gable or Gary, Cary Grant or Gary Cooper or somebody stopped wearing a hat, and the sales of hats went. Movies are profoundly, profoundly influential on the culture. Okay, so that's why I pay attention. I don't see the movies, but I read the reviews. Because they are really powerful in molding our values. Okay, we sit there and soak it up. We become what we behold, like everybody. Monkey see, monkey do, right? And if the movies are full of violence, then we become violent. We learn how to kill in a variety of ways. We learn all about spies. Who's interested in super spies? Well, for about 20 years, James Bond was it. You know how many James Bonds have been made? 25 James Bond films have been made. How many Ian Fleming books were there? 21. They just took the franchise and kept writing beyond the original. So we love our super spies. Anybody ever... Talk to a super spy? You're related to one? No, not really. But we sure let our minds go that way. The Bodhisattva goes, I understand all that. Does that lead to an end to suffering? If so, I will follow. If not, I'm not going to soak it up. Does that lead to wisdom? If it does, I want to follow it. If it doesn't, I'm going to let it go. Right? So this is the change of values, bit by bit by bit. How do we judge which movies we go to? Well, we read the reviews. Rotten Tomatoes, right? 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes is the, aggregates all the reviews. 
if, if it's a big budget film, like for example, uh, Hugo, the new Martin Scorsese film, or Tintin, and we can go watch Tintin, the new Steven Spielberg, probably there'll be 200 reviews. All the reviews from Europe, Canada, Australia, and America are all aggregated there. And then they add them up and they say, this is a good movie. Everybody else says so. Now, if the movie gets like under 10% positive, pretty much it's a stinker. <laughs> but if it's 50%, how do you decide which movie to go watch? My friends liked it, right? It was the only one I could get in because it was Christmas Eve and everybody, all the tickets were gone. You know, how do you decide what you're going to, oh, it's got a big star in it. Says, I really like all the movies starring Gong Li, so I'll go watch the Gong Li film. Oh, I like Andy Lau. I want to watch Andy Lau, you know. So that's one way to decide. But the Bodhisattva goes, no, nah, my values have to do with learning how to help people get out of pain. I'm a Dharma doctor in training. I need to learn how to administer Dharma medicine to let them heal. If you are sick, you go to the doctor who knows how to take care of your illness, right? Doctors don't get rotten tomato meters, right? Doctor, yeah. 35% say this doctor's thumbs up, right? Oops, 65% say, mm-mm, no. You would avoid that doctor, right? Well, the bodhisattva can't, he doesn't want to guess, okay? So here you have somebody in your family who's depressed. Serious depression. And your choices are medication, mood-altering drugs, or try to find a way to get in there. What is it? What is it that, that's on their heart? You think, geez, if I was a bodhisattva, I would know. I would know what to say. I would know what to do, what to feed them, how to respond to, to their states if I had the bodhisattva's wisdom. Oh, now it's got a face on it. Yeah. That's why the bodhisattva says, yeah, movie, that's entertainment, that's good. Time passes, I can forget my own pain if I'm watching a movie. But when the movie's over, I still have to get out of the seat and go deal with the people in my life. What then? Right? So you can look at our lives as a movie. I'm the writer. I'm the director. I'm the star. I'm the audience. I'm the reviewer. But who am I playing all these roles in the movie of my life? Well, the Bodhisattva says, good question. I had that very same question. Who am I in there on that screen doing these stuff? Who makes me do what I do? And what kind of a movie is it? Is it a comedy? Is it a tragedy? Is it a horror film? Is my life a horror film? Is it have a happy ending? Well, does anybody know the answer? Good question. So if we look at it that way, 
the Bodhisattva says, mm, I was sitting in meditation the other morning, and you know what was going on in there? Nothing. And then one thought moved, and I had a movie made behind that thought that I watched for five minutes before I realized that I had let my false thinking run away with me and it was all a movie. And I let it go, and you know what happened? Nothing. I was back to blank screen. And it was very peaceful. And that insight informed me that I am always making a movie and it's all voluntary. There is a place in my life where the screen is blank and any movie can show and no movie is on and I'm not watching and it is the most blissful, peaceful, energetic, all-encompassing moment of my day. I realize that I am constantly making a movie and the people around me are like the villains and the heroes and the co-stars of my film, but in fact, I'm writing the script. You know, you can have that experience. I'm giving you a, you know, a what if. But I've had that experience in when you get up from meditation and, and now, the star of our show, here's Dharma Master. Dun, 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 dun. And you, you get out, it's like, oh, let the camp turn, take one, right? And your movie of your life is on the screen. And you go through your day, and at the end of the day, you go, what was that all about? Rotten Tomatoes says 35% approved of it. The critics all panned it, you know. So it's like, okay, how come I do that? Is anybody awake to the reality that they're making a movie? That their reality is a movie? Who, who wakes up to that? And the answer is, the Buddha did, and anybody can. And in between really waking up to that, it's helpful to think we don't have to take it all so seriously. On one hand, you have to be renjan. You have to really go and do it sincerely. On the other hand, when you understand that there is a state of mind that is pre-movie, and it's in us right this minute, we don't have to be fooled by the, the movie that we're doing. So if in the middle of that movie we go out and watch movies, we're watching movies within movies, we're in a movie watching a movie, the only way you can know that is to sit down or still, calm down, until the six senses quiet to the point where you can see the whole production take the stage as soon as your senses move. It only takes usually one. Your ears can do it, your nose can do it. Just one scent of lunch being fixed in the kitchen when it's about 11 o'clock and you're still meditating, one smell of what's cooking and the movie, you've got the food on the table and you're reacting to it and you're full and you wish there was more but it's time to stop and you're regretting the fact that you couldn't eat three pieces of pie because it tasted so good. Back to meditation. It's like, 
I just saw that whole movie play out there, and it took about six seconds. What a lot of work. (laughs) I do that every day. In fact, I do it all the time. And you can experience that, but you have to be still before the... You can see it all boot up again. You let it go, and it's gone. But any one of the senses, that, would, that started with a scent, right? A nose smell started that whole thing up. Oh, my gosh. All it takes is for your mother to give you that look, right? Your mom raises the eyebrow at you, and you just, that movie rolls up on, you know. She infantilizes you. She makes you into a baby again, and you're a big grown-up with a life of your own. But mom thinks you're just... A loser again, and she'll tell you know. And she raises her eyebrow. That's all it takes. One eyebrow, and the movie of how can she, your resentment towards your mother comes rolling on the screen, on the stage screen. You know, boy, oh boy. How long have I been playing that movie on the screen in my life? Probably since I was born. Or the Buddha would say. The karmic seeds of that you brought with you to this body. These relationships, we do them over and over again. And that's out of my realm, but we can, you get the point. You can experience these things from a stillness. So the bodhisattva goes, yes, boy, I've been doing that. And the only thing that helps me wake up to the reality of this movie that I'm making and watching is the stillness that I get in my mind. And the stillness that I get in my mind comes from the precepts that I practice because they allow me to be quiet enough to watch the whole movie roll out. So, samadhi comes from precepts. Wisdom is understanding that this process is called consciousness. And... Until we become Buddhas, it's always one movie or another. So if you understand cause and effect, you can make it a movie that you want to be on the screen. To say that you're going to step out of the movie process, no. Reality is always one way or the other. It's like the weather is always there. But if you have wisdom, you can make it a you can make it not a comedy, but at least a heartwarming tale of human values, right? What is the critic, the reviewer's speech? You can make it a good movie, one that you're proud to produce. Yes, indeed. So, the Bodhisattva can renounce all inner and outer wealth in his search for the Buddha Dharma, show any manner of reverence, swallow any amount of pride, offer any kind of service, and endure any kind of pain and toil in his or her search for world-transcending Buddha Dharma. Boy, oh boy. We're, uh, we're going to have to add to our booklets because that that's the end of mine. We'll get a bunch more text ready for next week, which will be 31st, right? 
in 1983, I spent Christmas Eve under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, India. Doesn't that sound like the opening line of a short story? It's true. I was with uh, four other people traveling around the world, and we had gone to India. And there we were in Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha got enlightened. And it was Christmas Eve. So we uh, decided that we'd come such a long way. And India was so difficult to get to. At that time, you couldn't get to Lumbini. It was in Nepal. They didn't have visas for Westerners. So we, we didn't, we, we traveled all the Buddha's holy places, but we didn't get to Nepal. So we didn't see the birthplace, but we saw the enlightenment place. And there we were, Bodh Gaya. Here's the Bodhi tree. The Bodhi tree is not what you thought. Not what I thought. It's a banyan. Puti Shu is a banyan tree. And banyans have this thing that they do, which is they spread. Banyans have big, big, big trunks, like from there to there is the trunk of the tree. And they put out roots that then, they put out branches that then root, and then put out branches that root. So they spread that way. And it's not particularly tall, but it's really wide. And you can imagine a monk sitting in full lotus under that tree and uh, waiting to wake up. It's not the original one. You all know that story, that the original Bodhi tree got cut down. Uh, There was a jealous king who, for one reason or another, decided that he was going to show how strong he was, and he cut the Bodhi tree down. Luckily, a shoot of that tree had been sent to Sri Lanka and had flourished, so they asked Sri Lanka to send one back. So the current Bodhi tree is the child of the original. It's a grandchild, grandson, grandchild of the original, third generation. But oh, it's big, and I mean, boom, like that. And so it was cold on December 24th in uh, Bodh Gaya, India, and if, if there was any other reason to stay, it was because the taxi ride to get there was so terrifying. We didn't want to do it again. We thought, don't go anywhere here, just stay. We didn't die in the taxi, just don't move. Count your blessings. You know, taxi, we were traveling at night, and the roads in India, rural India, are badly lit, and people and cows intermingle on the road, and the taxis travel at full speed ahead, um, kind of heedless, and they just, everything merges. So we, we just, we couldn't watch. We just had to let the Buddhas and the taxi driver work it all out. <laughs> so we got there and decided that we would spend the night. And uh, the, I remember the uh, 
authorities because we were wearing monks' robes. We got a, they got a little bit of traction that way. We couldn't stay in. There's a temple. Uh, the, the Mahabodhi Society has that big triangular pyramid-shaped temple there. And they wouldn't let us stay there. I don't think we really wanted to. It was safer outside and clean, a little bit cleaner outside. Um, so the, uh, the monks who take care of the Bodhi tree come from the Mahabodhi Society, which is a Sri Lankan Buddhist community. And uh, the, the old monks said, very well, very well. You want to spend the night, most rare, very few people do. It should be okay, no problem, he said. And uh, the, the thing that we, that we were concerned with, it turned out to be a good thing, were the dogs. There were lots of dogs that come out at night, and they, uh, somehow they seemed to be protecting us rather than threatening us. So that was, we had large numbers of dogs watching after us. They, during the day, of course, they're not allowed to come and mess around, but at night, they're in, they're in charge. So we were surrounded by dogs and, and slept on the, underneath the tree. And uh, um, I wish I could say uh, something magical and miraculous happened. I did have some very interesting dreams, but they were not particularly complimentary. I think I was being chased by somebody in my dream. So I, I wish it were... Uh, uh, a more wonderful story to tell, but uh, about, you know, you think sleeping under the Bodhi tree, it was how sublime. Well, um, I didn't get sick, I remember that. I was pleased because we were, you know, but it really brought home to me the, um, the reality of the prince who put it all down and said, I want to wake up. I could have been king. I could have been the richest man on earth, had the most wives, had the most elephants, the most armies. Nope. I want to understand my mind. So he sat there not one night, but 49 nights till he woke up. Pretty amazing. So uh, the, the moral of that story is interesting Christmas Eves I have passed. <laughs> Leaping under the Bodhi tree. Okay, can I ask you to turn to page 58 in your songbook? Purify the 
Christmas carols are part of every um, child's upbringing in the Judeo-Christian context, certainly. And it's kind of hard to avoid them if you're shopping. Uh, You don't have to be a Christian. You just step into the mall and you hear Christmas carols. Um, But they have a special power. I saw a very moving tribute to um, Bob Hope. Anybody over 40 will know Bob Hope. Bob Hope used to go to the troops and do a Christmas show. And he did it year after year after year from 1942. And Bob Hope, people say he was a saint Um, whether or not Bob Hope was a saint is another question but in this respect he did saint-like behavior he went to where the troops were and on one occasion he spoke he went to a tiny Pacific island where there were 15,000 troops American troops um, 60% of whom died the next day but uh, this is in World War II. And they went to the Battle of Wake Island or something like that. Anyway, he um, spoke to them and made them laugh and made them remember Christmas and made them feel uh, a little bit like themselves before the, the horrific uh, wars that they were going to fight. And this... He did this for uh, years and years and years, Bob Hope. And they said that at the end of every uh, show that Bob Hope did, they sang Silent Night. And said that it never, ever failed to bring tears to every eye. The, uh, The singing of Silent Night very far from home. (laughs) 
was uh, pure healing magic for the men and women who heard it. And uh, that's the power of these carols, because they bring back every innocent Christmas of your life. experience with Christmas carols not too long ago. Um, there was a short-lived series on television. I, mind you, I don't watch TV, but conditions came together, and it was called Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Studio 680, 68 on the Sunset Strip. 
it was a um, say it didn't last very long but there was one um, episode a Christmas episode that happened right after Katrina right after the city of New Orleans was flooded and people died and the city was lost major American metropolis one of everybody's favorite cities lost and in the, the Christmas show, it was about the making of a TV show. And on the show, they needed a musical number, and they found the musicians who had showed up in L.A. exiled from New Orleans, some of the New Orleans jazz musicians. And in the show, they got these musicians. It was a brass band to play O Holy Night. And O Holy Night is one of the finest of Christmas carols. It was the night of our dear Savior's birth. And, oh, it's, uh, it's a really nice carol. And this brass band from New Orleans on the show within the show played O Holy Night in a way that brought absolute goosebumps to everyone who heard it. It was so pure. And in the context of these men being exiles from New Orleans, adrift in L.A., looking for work, and just singing, playing their memories of their beloved city was so powerful. Um, I, it's, it's such an obscure reference that probably people will never get a chance to see it, but um, that's my reference for beautiful, the power of music to bring back um, memories. So that's, uh, these, these songs have amazing energy, and I'm looking forward to when uh, Buddhism will have produced music as well known as beloved as Christmas carols. So we're working on that, and uh, that, that day may not be too, too far in the future. In the meantime, let's dedicate merit uh, from spending our time together tonight in the presence of this amazing sutra, having looked into it with our consciousness, our blood, our breath, our spirit, and share that goodness with others using our minds as far as our energy can take us. As far as our energy can send those thoughts. So we do it with our thoughts. Dedication of merit is done completely with your goodwill.
Shit. 